0: Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them.
1: Lee Cantor here with Katie Galley, another episode of Atlanta Business Radio. And Katie, this is going to be a special one.
2: It absolutely is. Uh, So welcome to a special edition of Atlanta Business Radio, Tuesdays with Corey, hosted by Corey Rick and Lee Cantor.
1: All right, Corey. Uh, want to tell us a little bit about your vision here, Tuesdays with Corey, what do you got in, in mind?
3: Yeah, thanks Lee. What we want to do here on the show is highlight very, very successful female executives that are, uh, uh very successful in Atlanta and changing the way things are done. And, um,
1: and why did you choose this, uh, subject matter? Why is that important to you?
3: Uh, Because I think uh, there's a lot of success out there and it's not always, uh, a lot of the female executives that are successful don't really talk about how they got there. And uh, I think it's just a way to highlight people that have been very, very strong and are driving a lot of good things in the community.
1: And it's important to kind of educate um, other business owners and female business owners, uh, you know, kind of the good, the bad, the ugly of the process. Sure. And uh, who do you have with us today?
3: Well, today I have, it's my great pleasure to have Barb Giamanco, who is uh, a very, very um, excellent social uh, media person and owns and operates uh, social centered selling. Good morning, Barb. Hey, Corey, thanks for having me. I have Barbara LaRusso, who is the client director um, of client development of LaRusso Law Firm here. Good morning, Barbara.
4: Hi, thanks, Corey.
3: And I have Julie Gorelick, who is the successful uh, CEO and executive of Junction Creative, and they're a strategic uh, company to help companies get on track. Is that right?
2: Mm -hmm. Exactly. Thanks, Corey.
3: Good stuff. And who are we going to lead off with? Well, we're going to start off with Barb Jumanko. Barb, you have uh, a great deal of experience here uh, with social uh, media and related business. How did you get started in that?
0: Well, um, funny story, when I retired from Microsoft, I had been running a national uh, sales team there. And at the time, I thought the company was getting too big. If you can imagine, Microsoft was 33,000 people at that point. And I thought, okay, they've grown too big. I want to go do my own thing. Um, But Corey, I have a passion for people development as well as technology. So I started investigating the early social media tools back in two thousand one, two, too. And then in 2003, LinkedIn came on the scene and I said, Hmm, I think the social media stuff, even in the infancy, I could see it was going to change up business and I could see it would impact sales. And I said, I'm going to be known as the sales meets social media gal. So here we are.
3: And you've certainly done that. I I actually have known Barb for a couple of years and she has helped me and my company with my LinkedIn profile and is uh, really uh, extremely knowledgeable and uh, has been extremely helpful to me personally. Thank you. Now you've written a couple of articles and books and you've been in Harvard Business Review... Tell us about that.
0: Yeah. So, uh, again, being ahead of my time in 2009, I wrote a book called The New Handshake Sales Meets Social Media. And uh, that actually was published in uh, 2010. Um, and, uh, you know, at the time people were like, ah, social selling, nah, I don't really see it. So it took a little while for that to, uh, to catch on. But funny story about the Harvard business review, people still ask me today if, uh, I had a press agent who got me, you know, published in the actual magazine. And actually that's not true. It was social media that did it for me. As it turned out in February of 2012, uh, it was about 6 PM on a Tuesday night, I remember it well because I simultaneously got a tweet on Twitter and an email from one of the editors that said, we're going to do a summer edition about how sales has evolved and you seem to be the go-to person with respect to sales means social media. Do you want to write for us? (laughs) Let
3: me think about that. Yeah. So
0: once I picked myself up off the floor, uh, resounding yes. And then, of course, they said, well, how did you find me? And as it turned out, unbeknownst to me, they had, uh, one of their VPs had heard me on a webinar, they signed up for the newsletter, they were following me on social and Twitter and LinkedIn, and so it does work.
3: Yeah, it sure does. So you have sort of a, a lot of experience in the C-suite. Yes. Walk us through that if you could. Um, you mean reaching C-suite executives? You know, experience yourself, uh, well, both. The initial, your initial experience running sales organizations, and then also you know, reaching out and, and how the two sort of, uh, you know, are, inter, are intermingled, if you will.
0: All right. So earlier in my sales career, you know, there was this thinking that do anything you can to get in the door and then try to work your way up, which I don't know, call me lazy. I was sort of thought, why would I want to do that? Why wouldn't I just try to go right to the top? So I always set my sights on going to the executives who actually were responsible for the budget. And also, though, at the time, there were less decision makers as part of the process. So today, I would say still try to go for the highest level decision maker you can get to because they have access to various pools of money and they can pull together budgets for you. But also we need to recognize there are a lot of people who influence the decisions now. CEB has said upwards of you know seven people can be involved in a buying decision. So now you need to go high, but you also need to cultivate influencers who have a say in that decision. Um, And then today I use social media to reach a lot of those execs because they are not answering the phone most of the time and they're not responding to a lot of emails, uh, predominantly because salespeople just crank out a lot of um, spam, a lot of
3: garbage. How how have you used your experience being personally in the C-suite to get to these folks now via social media?
0: Well, I think the most important thing, Corey, is you need to remember they're people just like us. I mean, they've got they've got a lot of challenges they're dealing with. They're dealing with a lot of stress. and I think part of it though, is you really have to constantly be educating yourself uh, staying on top of trends and you know things happening in the business and um you got to be on top of what's happening even with the competitive landscape. So when you so I go in, Believing that I have something of value to offer and because I've done my homework and I'm pretty knowledgeable about what's happening, I can bring a lot of insights to the table. The salespeople who are not doing so well these days are the ones who just want to pitch. They just want to roll in and pitch features and C-suite execs don't really care about that. They care about how you're going to help them increase pipeline and revenue and reduce costs and improve productivity and all these sorts of things. They also are super busy. So if you can be the resource who says, look, are you, are you guys thinking about artificial intelligence and what that's going to mean to your organization? And have you thought about this and that? And, you know, you become sort of that uh, resource arm. And I know one of our uh, one of your guests is, uh, is very well versed in research. And I'm betting she would agree with me that when you bring those insights to the table, execs will talk to you. They'll take a meeting with you.
3: Well, you've certainly differentiated yourself. I know. I noticed in, in knowing you and looking at your bio, you have mentioned that you've sold a billion dollars in sales. Yes. Walk us through that. <laughs> well, I'm old, Corey. <laughs> hey, now. You know, at 53, I'm much. I, I, I'm much more reserved about how I think about that. How about we use the word experienced?
0: Uh, yes, I'm very experienced. So I've been in sales for a very long time, and then also. Most of my sales experience has been in enterprise selling, so we're we're talking million, multi million dollar deals. So, and then you couple that with the 15 years I've been in business myself, and you know I continue to sell pretty big deals now. So, yes, I've crossed the billion dollar mark in terms of selling. So I know a little bit about how it gets done.
3: So you have a lot of experience, uh, you know, with LinkedIn and blogs and social media. Is there one? Is there one aspect or one tenet that you like? better than any other with the social media, all the different, you know, weapons, if you will, that are out there?
0: Well, uh, like Julie, who's a strategist, I'm a strategist too. So it's not about the tool. It's about who you're trying to reach. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people get all, oh, you've got to be on Pinterest and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn and this. No, you actually need to fish where the fish are. Like you have to determine where your prospects spend time online. And also to be fair, depending on the industry, there are many execs in certain industries who are not really participating online at all. And so for me, it's, it's, a, it's a continually a mashup of good offline and online strategies. I would say if you do a lot with business to business selling, LinkedIn is probably someplace you definitely need to have some presence. Uh, and then as far as the others, you know, I like uh, so I kind of work with LinkedIn and Twitter predominantly Twitter because there's no gatekeeper. I can talk to any executive anywhere in the world with nobody stopping me. And I often start a lot of relationships there that then move to business relationships on LinkedIn. So bottom line, it really depends on the customer and you know where they're going to tend to spend time. And I, I think it's also important that you... So there, there's a big thing in the industry today, Corey. Everybody's about the sales stack, right? More, 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 more. No, I say less, less, less. Just, what do you mean by that? I mean... You don't need 25 tools to be successful. And in fact, you'll burn yourself out. And if you're a smaller business, that's ridiculous unless you have the money to hire an agency. Um, But less is really more. A few tools used really, really well as part of your selling strategy. That's how you get the traction.
3: Walk us through Twitter and what you do and what advice you would give to the folks listening out there about how to use that because that's the first. I have not had a lot of experience with that personally, trying to use that as a way to build relationships with executives. Uh, So
0: Twitter, you know, it's kind of an acquired taste and it takes a little effort to start to build a bit of a following. Uh, But one of the ways that people can get started aside from just setting up the account is if you're using LinkedIn, you can also connect your Twitter account to your LinkedIn account so that in the beginning when you're getting started, if you post a LinkedIn status update, it can simultaneously, you know, Post to Twitter so you can start to share your content and your messaging there. Uh, and then it's not, you just get a list of your prospects and you start to search them out or connect with them. And most people put their Twitter handle on their profile, uh, LinkedIn profile these days. But that's what I did. I just created what's called a Twitter list of my top prospects. I went out and found the ones that were there. I followed them. I started watching what kind of content they shared. I would pick it up and retweet it. Occasionally, I interject and say, oh, that was a great article. Thanks for sharing. Here's what I liked about it. And so you just start talking to people, but you got to do it in 140 characters. And personally, for me, when I'm trying to reach an exec, I'm not trying to pitch. I'm looking to see what they share personally. People tend to be a little more personal on Twitter. So are they talking about the kids' baseball game or a charity they're involved in? And I look for that sort of common personal connection.
3: Very, You're
1: good. trying to make it human. And not Pretty much. leverage it as a kind of mass medium where they're just kind of like a robot, you it, know, kind of automated stuff that's just coming out that's meaningless, really.
0: That's right. I mean, spam, spam is spam. <laughs> so I don't use any of the tools to sell. It's to start the conversation and to build that relationship because some things in sales I don't think are ever going to change. People buy from people. And so I, I don't pitch. I'm just looking for. So I'll give you a great example. CMO a former CMO, chief marketing officer at Brain Shark. I happened, I wanted to do business words to her. And so I started following Robin's profile, happened to know that she's an avid bicyclist and uh, once a year raises money for a charity that's really near and dear to her heart. Now I'd been following her for a while and I saw it and all I did was pick it up. And by the way, that charity spoke to me as well. And all I did was pick it up and share it and, you know, said, hey, um, you know, at Robin says is, is, uh, you know, um, writing for charity. Think about making a donation. It's a great cause. Boom. She responded to me in like 15 minutes. Thank you so much for sharing with your network. That's how our relationship started. And then before you knew it, we were doing other things and they were inviting me to do work with them. And that's kind of how, that's how it goes.
1: Right. So you're doing it as a human being to human being and not kind of as a technology tool that's just done in mass and that's the mistake i think a lot of people they get kind of enamored with the oh i can send this out to four million people so i'll just keep doing that it's free there's no friction there but what you're doing is losing credibility and authenticity
0: very much so You, you what and and this is my message for any sales leader who's listening um you know when you push your people to keep sending more and more emails or make more and more phone calls or send more tweets or whatever and you're not paying attention to the quality of the messaging you're actually harming your brand you're not helping it because think about all the stuff that flows into your inbox
1: right it's you ignore it. Right? i mean you just you have to ignore it cuz there's so much
0: and not only do you ignore it if you're like me by the time you get the fourth did you get my other three emails i'm like who are you and I will never buy from you. I don't care what you sell. Right. It becomes a negative. It's not even a neutral. It's, a, it's negative. a negative. Yeah. 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 Now,
1: do you have any rules of thumb for how often to post or do you just kind of go with the flow of the individual that you're targeting?
0: I think everybody needs to develop their own cadence for me personally, uh, because it's, it's hard to remain visible. So I definitely post something every single day. It's a, a, at a minimum, it's a LinkedIn status update. I'm going to weigh in on a few comments, What I try to do Lee is say, I have every morning is routine for me now, but 15 minutes to kind of check my accounts. Has anybody, you know, commented, sent me a message. What about a status update? Have I been mentioned that I can weigh in and, you know, and comment. So I'm in I'm active every day, but it's usually 15 minutes or so. That's outside of any research I do to prepare for sales calls and that kind of thing. And
1: then when you say, like if somebody mentions you, then you respond. You, Absolutely. But then you might post an original piece of
0: content. I do. I'm a blogger, so I blog. I have a podcast. So there's so, you know, in my case, it's a little bit uh, different because it's, I mean, this is what I do for customers. Right. And so I don't buy that business of the, you know, cobbler, the cobbler's children have, right, don't have shoes. I don't buy that. If you're in the business of uh, creating a social media strategy and coaching people on their sales activities and efforts, you darn well better demonstrate you know how to do <laughs> but, it. Exactly. If and you I, can't do it for yourself. Right. And I drive a ton of business inbound um, as a result of my efforts. Uh, but yes, I mean, it, I have a, a great post that I hope people go to the blog and check out. It's, you know, 17 ways to become a content concierge you don't have to write blogs to create content. It can be um, longer status updates to start a conversation. It could be coming on a radio show. It could be uh, recording an audio tip on your phone. There's lots of ways. And so I think sometimes people get all hung up like, oh, I have to blog. I have to do this. No, you've got to find the right thing for you. Now, um, if somebody wanted to learn more, uh, where should they go? So they can go to Giamonco.com and the business website is SCI, excuse me, scs-connect.com and love to have you follow my podcast, The Razor's Edge. You can find it on iTunes. And then what's the pain
1: your perfect prospect is having where you're the perfect solution?
0: Hmm, what's the pain they're having? Uh, there's still there, two things. Either they're still fence-sitting and think social media is for kids and has no place in driving business growth. Or they've gone down the path of some social selling activity, but they've been taught how to use the technology to kind of broadcast. They're not getting any results, and they feel frustrated. So those are two kinds of customers for me. Good stuff. Well,
3: thank you so much for being part of the show. All
0: right. Thanks, Lee. And thanks, Corey. Thank you, Barb. All right, Corey. Who do you got next?
3: We have Barbara LaRusso, who is the uh, client development director at the LaRusso Law Firm. Barbara, welcome.
4: Thank you.
1: Did you learn something there, Barbara? I
4: Just did. take notes? I did. <laughs> I, up here. <laughs> locked, locked away in the vault.
1: So what are you doing for folks?
4: Well, um, LaRusso Law Firm is a civil litigation law firm in the Windy Hill area here in Atlanta. And the owner is happens to be my husband, Lance LaRusso. And we have three other attorneys. So we're sort of a boutique civil litigation firm.
1: And then, uh, um, what does that mean? Civil
4: Civil litigation is anything other than criminal litigation. So, your company is sued and you need defense. Or you, one of the largest parts of of our business is catastrophic personal injury work. Mm -hmm. And another segment of our business is also law enforcement defense. My husband, in his previous life, was a law enforcement officer here in the Atlanta area. So, then while he was doing that, he went to law school at night. Wow! And became an attorney. So he's his passion really is representing law enforcement
1: and helping them. So now, um, what's your role as client development? Like, what do, what's a day look like for you?
4: Um, I'm sort of well. It started before Lance had a lot of other attorneys in the office. It was really kind of selling Lance, <laughs> if you will. Um, so my my role on a daily basis is helping drive those social media strategies, things that Barb has talked about. Mm-hmm.
1: So like create thought leadership and do research?
4: Yes. Um, Lance is a unique lawyer, I think, in terms of he loves marketing. Most attorneys you have to kind of drag That's them like to the water evil, trough. Right? Yes, you have to drag them to the water trough and make them drink. But he's almost, I have to hold him back sometimes <laughs> a little bit and do some of the smart things like what Barbara's talking about in terms of making sure you're doing the right strategy and what is is selling his authenticity and his passion. Because
1: he gets distracted by shiny objects. He'll try lots of things a little bit instead of maybe going deep on something
4: Well, hes really focused on um, in his tra- our strategy is really a lot of law enforcement officers are on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't do as much, you know, business to business selling right. um, in terms of LinkedIn, but um, Facebook and Twitter, things like that are more of his wheelhouse in terms of where are our customers <laughs> because unfortunately, a lot of the law enforcement clients that we have are also, our personal injury clients. Um, people think that police officers are more at risk in terms of, you know, being injured, or being shot, things like that on the job, but driving around every day is really risky. And so a lot of our clients are, um, have been catastrophically injured on the job as law enforcement officers. So um, that's really our focus in terms of Keeping, um, keeping our focus on the law enforcement, right?
1: And you just want to right. serve that ecosystem, exactly. Now, um, your background—you have a PhD in applied psychology. Now, how does that tie into your work in marketing?
4: How did I get here? <laughs> um, well, yes, my graduate degree is in applied psychology, and for about mm, eighteen years, I worked in that space doing. Um, creating employee selection tasks and Mm -hmm. kind of helping implement those across large insurance clients or all around the country. So, and I'll talk a little bit about how Corey and I met in terms of my journey, because one of the reasons I started working with the law firm is that we needed more kind of work-life balance. We had several older relatives that needed assistance Mm -hmm. and looking after. So that's how I ended up moving into working with Lance. So I'd have more flexibility and, I right. have, and my job previously had kind of morphed into working not just with the research side of the business, but also client management client development and that sort of thing. So that's that skill set that and, I brought to the lawn. And farm. you
1: like that? Yeah. The building the relationships and the kind yeah. of nurturing those relationships and seeing the impact. That's probably very rewarding.
4: Yeah, unfortunately, that's very true. And and unfortunately, with the type of practice that we have at the law firm, you're sort of seeing people at kind of the worst right. point in their life, if you think about it. They've been involved with a, you know, a serious injury or they've been hurt on the job or gone through a traumatic experience. Unfortunately, fortunately, for most of us, we don't need a litigator every day. We don't need a lawyer right. every day. So. Our goal is to kind of stay top of mind, be a thought leader, kind of be an kind of an unabashed um, advocate for right. our for our client base.
3: Well, I think one of the things that that has impressed me, I've I've known Lance and Barbara for 18 years, they're good friends, uh, good clients. And, and one of the things that's impressed me most about you and Lance is you always seem to be two steps ahead of everybody else. And you know, Lance is obviously, if you were on the show, you would realize he's kind of a different animal. And I say that, um, you know, uh, with all due respect, but he loves, he does enjoy the marketing. He does enjoy the writing and, and he is very, very good at, he's very convincing. And you guys are always two steps ahead of the other people that compete against you. And so, uh, you know, you guys are uh, just, a, just an outstanding team and uh, it's nice that you're uh, wired so differently. And, um, you know, I mean, Barbara has a PhD. I mean, um, you know, my wife and I stopped playing games at the LaRussos because we know we can't win. (laughs) So, um, uh, and she brings just a great, um, even if she doesn't know something, one of the things that's impressed me most about you is that you figure it out, you figure it out on the fly, and it's right. There's a number of things you've helped me with my shop on. And I know in the beginning you didn't know exactly what needed to be done, but it was always done and it was always done right. So, uh, we certainly appreciate that. But, what you guys have done marketing-wise, I think, is is superlative.
4: Yeah, Lance is uh, one of the things um, in terms of focusing on specific things that reach uh, our target market. Um, he has a blog, Blue Line Lawyer, that he writes on very regularly where he's sharing information, current topics, legal trends that are important to our client base, as well as he has four books yes. out. Um Everything from business development strategy for attorneys to critical incident response for law enforcement to his latest book about um, law enforcement and media response called Blue News. So driving appropriate content and content that speaks to our audience is the key there.
3: Well, and I think he's a. Your firm is in an extremely unique position because of Lance's prior experience as a law enforcement officer. I mean, obviously, he has great credibility with those folks, and you know, has done a great service to them, protecting them and and helping them the way he has. And he's also a guest that's very much in demand on various you know radio shows, news shows. I mean, you know, it's a couple times a week. I'm going to turn on the TV, and Lance is on there talking about something.
4: Yes, either uh, responding as. A client's attorney in terms of media response, or I think he's, we estimate he's done probably over 400 media interviews at this point in from his life as a, from a police officer through now. So he has a lot of experience with it and he is, he's a very passionate advocate in that space.
3: And, you know, as the old saying goes, he's kind of a hard dog to keep on the porch. How do you do that as the, as the head owner there?
4: I'm the head owner. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, I'm the head owner of Lance oh, keeping yes, that dog yes, on the porch. Yes. Your name's on the, on the sign, right?
4: <laughs> yeah. I'm not an attorney. so Everyone knows that, but um, yeah, you know, you do have to pick the right um, tool to use out of the toolbox in terms of what is going to speak to your audience as we've been talking about, but also where does that person's strength lie? And he's always loved reading. I'm obviously reading, um, but he also, he really loves writing. And of course, most litigators love talking. So (laughs) he fits that bill as well.
1: Now, how does he um, write so many books? I mean, that's the, the writing. What's the writing process like? Do you help in that regard?
4: I have, I do a lot of the editing. So we have even everyone in the law firm, if they're up for it, they'll read the books before they go out. And of course we have professional editors as well. And we work with Book Logics, which is a self-publishing firm, right? Local firm, yeah, in Alpharetta. Which they're a great team, and the books have each have evolved in different ways. Um, when Cops Kill, which is his book that discusses officer-involved shootings, that kind of grew out of an amalgamation of his blog posts, and then added onto that, and it grew into a book. Mm-hmm. Then um, Blue News was written. Just let's do an outline and sit down and write. Did you help in from that regard?
1: The um, outline.
4: I'm um, to a certain extent, yes, from and, a structure standpoint. Exactly, exactly.
1: And that's a that's an important part of writing, so that you do stay focused in the. So, advice for an author out there, or aspiring author, would be to kind of spend maybe more time than you think on the outline.
4: Yeah, I think every writer kind of writes in different ways, mm-hmm. but as an attorney, I think that. His his um, tactic, I think, was to start with an outline of what he wants to talk about. And the my, one of my inputs with the book was to give concrete tips on how to handle media response. Like not Very just, actionable, not exactly, hypothetical. Exactly. There are a lot of examples in the books. He and does stories, a lot of interviews right. with local media um, personalities, as well as um, longtime reporters here in the Atlanta area, as well as... Kind of thought leaders, boots on the ground, folks who have, who are law enforcement leaders who have been through difficult situations.
1: So now, an important lesson for people out there: um, when you're serving a group like this, is I guess a niche to, to target a niche that uh, resonates with you and that you can serve effectively, and to really immerse yourself in the community. And like his unique background of being a law officer and an attorney makes them uniquely qualified to really speak to that and serve that ecosystem.
4: Exactly. If you don't have that credibility and that knowledge and background of what a very specialized profession that law enforcement is, everyone, you know, watches Law & Order and they think that they know. They figured it out, right. That they know. Because they've seen
1: every episode. We
4: watched ER, (laughs) so we know how to save everyone with George Clooney helping. Um, But... But that's not really true. And right. unless you kind of have that background. And
1: that if you don't have that level of empathy from, you know, as an outsider, by having walked in their shoes, he is uniquely qualified. Exactly. So now if uh, somebody wants to get a hold of you guys, what's the best way?
4: LaRussoLawFirm.com. And the blog is Blue Line Lawyer, as well as all his social media is Blue Line Lawyer.
1: Good stuff. Well, yeah. thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. All right, Corey, who's bringing it home? Who's the headliner? Next, Next, we have
3: Julie Gorelick. Julie is the CEO and managing partner of Junction Creative. Yes. And tell us about your company, Julie.
2: Sure. Um, Junction Creative was really formed out of uh, something we've talked about here, Barbara and Barb, is a passion. Um, you know, I started Junction really as a hybrid between a traditional business consulting firm and an ad agency, Uh, Eight years ago, I saw a gap in the market where I saw agencies that were pumping out truly brilliant, creative, um, exciting campaigns. They were adopting social media. Um, And on the other side, I also saw a lot of companies struggling to sort of figure out what that looked like. And a creative mind can't always determine business value. And so I saw that there was an opportunity to create an actual business strategy and then tie a series or a comprehensive set of solutions across company that would help them employ an effective strategy. So our team will actually help with the thinking. We'll do the research. We'll help define those strategies. And I think one of our best assets too is that we'll stick around. We'll actually execute and we'll prove it through our results. And so that's where we've been successful over the last eight years is that our metrics and our results speak for themselves. And you know our clients are growing um, and were able to reference actionable things that we've done, not just a fancy PowerPoint presentation that's sitting on a shelf that they overpaid for. Um, so we just took a different approach.
3: Yeah, there's an old saying I just made up. It's all about the money. Yeah. So you didn't always have an entrepreneurial... You didn't always have uh, you know uh, the business want to walk us through that. Mm-hmm.
2: So I was raised by entrepreneurs. Uh, my mom, when before we were born, had her own salon at the age of 22, which is, you know, back in that time, women didn't start their own businesses. My father worked in corporate America for 20 years and then one day decided he was going to go out on his own. Uh, bought a restaurant when I was in high school. And my sister and I sort of looked at each other and said, oh, gosh, are we still going to get to go to college? Like, what if this isn't successful? Um, And so for 10 years, we worked side by side with my parents. Um, They were unbelievable advocates in teaching us how to run a business. We were responsible. So we weren't just employees. We were helping manage um, a staff of 25 at the age of 20, 21. And I swore after that experience, after college, I would never go into business, swore it up and down. I was going to be a reporter on the news like Barbara Walters. I was going to do investigative journalism. Um, and after I did PR um, in Paris for a PR agent, I learned sort of how to do it in a couple languages, came back, and I've been doing business ever since. So clearly, what I thought I wasn't passionate about ended up to be one of my biggest passions.
3: So, when your parents had the restaurant, was that was that in Atlanta, or was that?
2: Is in Gettysburg, north? Pennsylvania. Yep. So a big, you know, Civil War town. Um, you know, we've got about a million and a half visitors a year. Uh, we were right on the strip, so we served hundreds of thousands of customers every year. So there's always a line around the door. So talk about high pressure <laughs> <laughs> situations at a young age. But it was fun, met a lot of great folks and, and really learned the backbone of what it means to run a business. It's not glamorous. It's not sexy, as everybody would say. It's, it's hard work. Um, and I feel that that really escalated my career much faster, largely because instead of worrying about going to happy hour with my friends, I was still in the office working until eight, nine o'clock at night to make sure that I was doing my job.
3: What did you take in your experience from the restaurant, and you know what did what helped you? What helped you from that experience get to where you are now?
2: Oh gosh, I mean there are so many lessons. I mean it it really teaches you uh, what I think is most important now in today's culture is it teaches you how to work with different people. You work with people from all walks of life um, that have all different experiences, and then you also are waiting on people that all come from different backgrounds. They all have problems. They um, all have success stories. And so I really use it as an opportunity because I love communication and love learning about people. I did. I learned about every single one of them. And I think that that's how I was able to extract as much knowledge as I could. Because as I went into a corporate environment and started working, um, I would see things in the restaurant that you would say, "Oh, once I get through college, I'm never going to deal with this again. Well, guess what? Every single one of those lessons I learned, only this time it was someone that had three degrees and made a lot of money, but yet they were still at the core making these decisions and maybe making some mistakes or treating people a different way. So it really equipped me that when faced with adversity in the corporate world, it didn't scare me and I knew how to handle it. So
3: So you started off as a reporter and you were in Paris. Mm -hmm. How was that?
2: So interestingly enough, um, I was in college as my senior year, was getting ready to graduate. I saw a flyer on the wall um, in the language department about getting a job in your field if you were able to um, get into Boston University's international program. And I went to you know the guidance counselor and or the counselor at college, and she said, "Oh, you know, we've never had anybody from a state school ever get accepted to this program. It's pretty, you know, it's pretty hard to get into. I don't know that you really want to spend your time doing that." And I thought, well. Let me see if I can. So I put together the packet, um, was accepted. Eighteen of us went out of a pool of a thousand. We were actually placed in our field. So we did interviews. Um, we told them what we were looking for and ended up getting matched with a PR agent for fashion photographers. I knew nothing about fashion at that point. um learned that she's one of the most renowned PR agents that's in the business um, in New York and in Paris. And on the first day, she said, do you want to do this in English or French? And I said, well, I'm in Paris, so let's do it in French. And she never spoke a word of English to me for the remainder of the six months that I was there. Um, So after that, I came back and that's when I was sort of deciding what's the next step. Um, It was a great experience for me and also different people, different language, different culture, uh, and came back with a much greater appreciation for what we have here.
3: Sure. And then you did some, then you worked with venture capital. Walk us through that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I moved to Philadelphia, started working for an entrepreneurship institute that was focused on early stage companies uh, and spent most of my time reviewing business plans, marketing models, financial models. I was quickly recruited actually to join a venture capital organization where it was my responsibility to source deals, uh, find those companies that were investable or looked like they could be investable. So I would review Again, business plans, marketing strategies models. And so during that time, I probably reviewed anywhere from one to two thousand a year um, and spent quite a bit of time learning about different industries um, and um, learned you know what makes a good business plan, but then also you know where the gaps are in a marketing model and even financials. Um, it's not something that you can always teach in a classroom once you get into practical business setting.
3: Generally speaking, and realizing that you know there's uh, variances in, ver- in in different businesses what makes a good business plan in your estimation
2: <laughs> Real- generally speaking mm-hmm. being realistic um what i deal with a lot of our clients is you know you can put together the best financial model you could be on paper a 150 million dollar company the reality is most companies today won't see 100 million and they won't even see 10 million and so what i always try to counsel my clients on is Let's take a look at sort of this from a realistic standpoint. One, do you have the technology or do you have the product or do you have the service that's actually scalable? Um, Some businesses aren't designed to be scalable. And by scalable, I mean, they're not designed to be $10 million companies, but could they be a $2 million company with margins at 80% making a lot of money? Absolutely. It's all about being realistic about the goals and objectives for the entrepreneur, what they actually want out of the business. Uh, and then also putting together a plan that is realistic, it's achievable, and that there's a, a strategy <sighs> and a plan to execute against that.
3: So how have you used your experience in Paris and your venture capital experience? I mean, how how is Junction Creative? How was how that born?
2: You know, it's really passion. I mean, one of the things I learned early on, I'm very passionate about people. I'm passionate about helping people. Um, And for me, it just so happens that I'm passionate about being able to impart my knowledge and the things that I've learned to help them run their businesses more successfully. Um, It even could be a department within a company, but arming them with the knowledge that they need to make more informed decisions um, that can have a very positive impact. Um, I oftentimes, um, my clients will often say that I care probably too much about their business, um, but I am passionate about what I do. And so to me, it's a puzzle. If there's a problem or a pain point that a client's going through, we will rip it apart, and so we can figure out how to put it back together again. And so every client is different, as um, you know, Barb had mentioned, and every strategy is different. The pieces are different, but at the end, they all have their own unique puzzle.
3: So, in your organization, how many employees do you have?
2: So we have seven full time. Um, we're actually in a, a period of growth right now, so we'll be adding two more. Yeah, you here. hate to hear that, right? I know. It's we're very excited about it. Um, And so, you know, at our height, we had 15 people in 2009. Um, But I think for us, I like the boutique aspect. It it enables us to be agile. And one of the other benefits I have is I have a few um, ex-entrepreneurs who've sold their businesses and are almost at retirement age or in retirement age, if you will. And they love to consult on very specific projects. So if I get a client in a specific vertical... Um, and I can really leverage their experience. I'm able to bring them in on a part-time basis to help out with that client um, and really bring even more knowledge. I mean, I have 20 years of experience, but there's nothing like sitting next to somebody who's 45 years of experience and has done it successfully.
3: What is, what? who would be good, who would be somebody good for you to help? Yeah. Who would be a good prospect for Junction Creative? Yeah.
2: Uh, folks ask me this all the time and I would say, you know, we do work across industry vertical. That's sort of one of our, um, we don't focus on one industry, so we're able to leverage a lot of insights across industry. But if there's a company that's looking for a new growth strategy or the strategy that they've been employing isn't generating the results they're looking for, sometimes it's helpful to have an external source, take a look at it and see if there's something that we can retool or fix um, it can also be a startup or an early-stage company that's taking something to market. Um, we always like to make sure that it's a good cultural fit for us, but we really can work with a, a number of company, whether it's a small to mid-sized company. Um, and we've been very fortunate to work with some Fortune 1000 companies as well.
3: Do you have specific <laughs> company metrics that resonate with you, that you're drawn toward, that you're passionate toward, a certain size company, a certain kind of industry?
2: I would say, honestly, we... I think what why we're so passionate about what we do is that we don't just have one type of company we're looking for. I think for me, what's most attractive is knowing or seeing a path to help them. Um, If we do see a client and it's completely not in our wheelhouse, and maybe they're not ready for a change, or we we don't feel we can impact them in a positive way, we won't take them on. We're not going to sell a client that we can't help. And so for us, we take a look at and see how much impact we can drive for them, and. I mean, those are the clients that sort of keep us going all day long.
1: Now, as a um, uh, kind of uh, hybrid between traditional consulting and also uh, creative boutique, what's usually the point of entry? Is it more from the strategic side or is it more from the, the creative side?
2: Yeah, I would say in the early years, it was more on the creative side. I don't think a lot of folks understood our model. They were like, oh, you're an ad agency.
1: And you'd be like, oh, not exactly. Exactly.
2: And so it took a number of years. So in the early years, I would say the point of entry was predominantly creative. So they the said they need years. like
1: a website redesign or like it could have been something like that?
2: It could have been. we worked with client like Yahoo, where we basically did all of their integrated advertising campaigns, creative development, user experience. Um, we also worked with um, small companies on building websites mm-hmm. and logos and the, whole, the the brand collateral, if you will. Um, now where we're finding, um, the most success is that we do approach every client, even if it is a creative client from the strategic side, we want to make sure that even when they come to us and say, look, we want to employ this big ad campaign and this is what it needs to look like. We take a step back and say, well, what is it that you're trying to achieve?
1: Right. What outcome do you <laughs> desire? Let's start there. Exactly.
2: Work exactly. Because from a creative standpoint, we can execute just about anything. Right. Um, you know, but from our standpoint, we want to make sure it's the right solution. So we'll ask those questions. And We've worked with a lot of our clients for five to seven years. They've stayed with us. They've grown, um, which is also a testament to sort of what value we've provided to them.
1: But a, a new firm that's looking at you guys, what is that? What are, What's the problem they're having? Is it they're plateauing or they're kind of going backwards?
2: We see a lot of companies that are focused on growth, but they're nervous about the political environment. They're nervous about the economic climate. They're worried that something is They're waiting ahead.
1: till that stops. Well, so, there's no change?
2: Well, well <laughs> when I. When does I'm, that
1: happen? When do they ring a bell? When they say, oh, we're doing, doing well, a pause for a while? In
2: 2008, it was everyone <laughs> called it once saying, oh, we should have thought about this a year ago. <laughs> I will say this time, it's very refreshing to see that companies are thinking about it already. They're right. nervous about it, they're reaching out. And so, we're able to get them at a place where we can help them right. um, once the damage is sort of done or where they've. Right, You're, you're reacting then, right? Instead exactly. of being
1: proactive. Exactly. So this must be exciting time for you.
2: It is. We have a lot of exciting clients and um, just enjoy it, what we're doing.
1: And then uh, you mentioned the importance of uh, cultural fit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How did that come about? Do you have some scar tissue of maybe things weren't a cultural fit and you kind of did some things that in hindsight you wish you hadn't have done in this regard that, I mean, obviously it was learning yeah. Opportunity, but cultural fit seems very important to you.
2: I, it is, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, uh, you know, when you're starting a business, you think you have to take every client, or right. every client is going to be a great client. What I've learned is that for us to be able to come into a company, work with the C level, work with the employees, there has to be a desire to want us in the room. If you don't want us in the room, it can become very contentious, and quite frankly, it's a waste of money. Um, Because we will push and we will execute. Um, So I will say, not that I've made mistakes in the past, because I appreciate every client that we have. They're all learning. They're all learning. They are all learning experiences. But what I will say is that, you know, if there's a desire for change or there's a desire for something different, um, then we're the firm. We aren't the yes men. We're not going to sit in a room and tell you how smart you are. What we are going to do is we're going to listen to you and we're going to say, you know, here's how we can execute it. Or, hey, you're on target. And here are the other three things that you can do to do that. Right. So we, we're not an adversary, rather, we're a partner. Um, and if somebody sees us as an adversary, then it's, it's not probably not be a, a good fit. Good, mm-hmm. okay.
1: good stuff. Now, if somebody wants to learn more, is there uh, a place to go? Is the website the best place to, to learn yeah. about you guys?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You can go to www.junction-creative.com or email me directly at julietjunction-creative.com. I answer my phone. I don't have an assistant. So if you call me, I'll answer the phone.
1: Good stuff. Well, thank you for being part of the show today.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Well,
3: Corey, how'd it go? First episode, you feel good? Yeah, I thought it was uh, very good. You know, it's interesting. I had one thought when I was listening to all the success in the room talk. And with all the success that you've achieved, when do you sleep?
2: At night. (laughs) At night. When it's still dark, sometimes. So
3: now, <laughs> um,
2: the key to be being successful,
0: Corey, is not working twenty four seven. Yes, exactly. I agree. Recharging
1: has to be part of the process. Absolutely. Yes. Now, um, every, we're going to be doing this on a regular rhythm, where we're going to be interviewing uh, leaders, female leaders. Um, so keep the word out, mm-hmm. uh, ladies in the room. If you know uh, any other female leaders, please help us. Uh, Identify them and get them on so we can help tell their stories because it's important to get the word out about this group, right? Yes, sir. And if somebody wants to learn more about you and your firm, Corey, what's the best way to get a hold of you?
3: Yes, it's uh, the Long Term Care Planning Group. It's www.thelongtermcareplanninggroup.com.
1: Well, thank you for sponsoring the show. It's an important show, and uh, we help to serve uh, the females out there doing cool stuff.
3: Uh, Thanks so much, Lee. And thanks to all the guests that appeared this morning. Thanks for having
1: us. Thanks, Corey. All right. This is Lee Cantor uh, and Katie Galley. We will see you all next time on Atlanta Business Radio.